0: The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray together. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God of Abraham, we praise you and thank you that you have kept and are keeping your promises to ancient Abraham by gathering as his children by faith, people from all the nations, extending the blessing of your covenant to us who were strangers and aliens, but now by your wonderful grace have been brought into the very family of God as heirs of Abraham as we walk in the footsteps of faithful Abraham. Father, thank you that you are a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Even at the cost of the lifeblood of your own son, you kept your commitment, and we praise you for that. Give us ears to hear your word in these moments that we spend in meditation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) Well, those of you who have been here from the beginning of the semester, who are not labeled this morning, as all our friends are labeled, know that on Thursdays we are in the midst of a series by various faculty members on the book of Exodus, and we're, we're asking you to do some time travel. Uh, as you have seen so far. We've gone from Exodus 1 to 15 to 24, and now we're back to Exodus 3. Uh, So we've, you know, and since Israel already left Egypt and God made his covenant, but now we're back to a a much more desperate situation long before that. Um, Exodus chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to begin to read from verse 23 of chapter 2 because it sets the setting for uh, God confronting Moses Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thus far, God's word, may His spirit write in in our hearts this morning. We don't have time, obviously, to think about all the richness of this text, but I want really to focus our attention on Moses' excuses. Uh, Moses' excuses. As you heard, Israel was in a hopeless situation when the Lord, at least, a Apparently hopeless situation when the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Hopelessness is something that you may have encountered at some point in your life, or may have encountered at some point in your ministry to others, or if you haven't yet, you may well at some point. People absolutely desperate and seeing no ray of, of hope. It may be when you're ministering someone who's gotten a diagnosis of untreatable cancer, or trying to counsel a couple, and it seems as if a marriage is irreparable, or somebody who all they can see is a a bankruptcy and and financial ruin that can't be avoided, Uh, or it may be a church split that seems inevitable. Hopelessness. Well, the Israelites had hopelessness. Uh, Chapter 1 reminds us that they had been in slavery for generations and generations, that uh, the previous pharaoh to the one who is now on the throne, we know that previous pharaoh had died, but uh, Moses doesn't know that yet, had ordained a kind of a semi-genocide, kill off the boys, they, are, they have military potential, slaughter them, we'll let the girls live. And then it seemed chapter 2, we haven't looked at chapter 2 yet, but let me, is somebody assigned chapter 2, Dr. Kim? Okay, well, I'm not going to say much, but it looked as if the champion had arrived. Uh, saved from that slaughter by being drawn out of the river. Moshe, drawn out of the river. Uh, raised as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, raised royally. Stephen in Acts 7 tells us that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in his words and deeds, the premier champion. And not only that, he cared about his people. He went and identified with his people. He took up arms against an Egyptian taskmaster who was abusing an Israelite slave. Great, but, I'm sorry to steal somebody's thunder, but the champion fails. He thinks they're going to recognize, in fact, Stephen says this pointedly in Acts 7, he thought they would understand that God was going to deliver them through him. But they did not understand, and his leadership is rejected, and he flees for his life in terror. And, of course, Moses doesn't know what we read at the end of chapter 2, that the Pharaoh that was seeking his life had died. But even with that death, nothing was better for the Israelites. So they groan, and they cry, and they cry, and they groan. Verse 23 Actually, 24. There are actually four different Hebrew words there. It only sounds like two in English, but there are four. Uh, They lament. So, it's all desperate. The only spark of hope is something they can't see, and that is what Moses tells us now as the inspired author, things he didn't know at the time. God heard. God saw. God remembered. God knew. Meanwhile, back at the ranch... Well, actually not on the ranch because Midian was... The, the far side of, 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 uh, of the Sinai Peninsula was, uh, was, from Midian's point of view, was out on the west where Horeb is. So uh, Moses had wandered far from his father-in-law's territory seeking pasturage for his flock. Uh, but it brings him to the mountain of God, to Horeb. Now Israelites, later hearing this text, are going to say, Whoa. Yes, Moses will come back here. That's what God promises in our text. He'll be back, and he'll be back with a huge crowd. This is a significant mountain. But God here at Horeb, far from Egypt yet, far from Midian, certainly far from the land of promise, God sets in motion uh, a series of events that will bring hope to the hopeless and release to the captives. He appears to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush that doesn't burn up. That's significant. We're tracking with Moses' words now, his inspired words from Genesis into Exodus. We remember that God appeared in a flame of fire earlier to Abraham, the God of Abraham prays. Genesis 15, God appeared to Abraham and cut a covenant with Abraham. When Abraham had despaired of ever having children to carry on the line of the covenant, and God said, you just count the stars, your children will be more than that. But Abraham still couldn't believe it, and God cut a covenant. That is, he commanded Abraham to slaughter several sacrificial animals, cut the carcasses in two, create a kind of a bloody corridor of death on the ground, and then he put Abraham to a kind of a sleep. And the flame of fire, the, the smoking firepot, the... the the very presence of God passed through the animals, saying, may I become like these victims, brutally slaughtered and torn limb from limb, if I fail to keep my promise to Abraham. My life is on the line. And now God comes back in the fire, and he says, I haven't forgotten. I've remembered my covenant. I'm coming here. I am coming It's no coincidence, you see, that twice in our text, God goes through the whole litany of the occupants of the promised land, that list of those various nations, because that's exactly what God had done to Abraham. I'm going to bring you, God said, they're actually not quite the same names, but pretty close. It's a pretty close uh, overlap. I'm going to bring you to the land of the Kenites, the Kessites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. A few of those had passed from the scene by Moses' day, but it's the land. And twice over, in verse 8 and verse 17, he gives us the list of the people that he will dispossess in order to bring his people into the land that he's promised. And it's no coincidence that the messenger of the Lord, who is, as you notice, the Lord, the messenger is the Lord, who is God, All the same person identifies himself as the God of your father, but not just Moses' immediate father, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generations back, over 400 years earlier. So God is coming in a flame of fire. And of course, Israelite readers of Exodus will remember that God will come back to Mount Horeb As Moses comes back to Mount Horeb, and God will come to Mount Horeb in a flame of consuming fire on the top of the mountain to deliver his treaty, his covenant to his people. So, the presence of God makes the desert sand holy ground. Take your sandals off. Moses does. And Moses realizes he's in the presence of God himself, and so he hides his face. Sure, His ancestor Jacob had survived wrestling with that strange man at that place he called Peniel, Peniel, God's face. I saw God's face and survived, Jacob said in amazement. Moses isn't isn't presuming on that precedent. He hides his face. And then God speaks. And God speaks exactly the kinds of words that we heard at the very end of chapter 2. Seeing, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them and to take them up to the a good land, a wide land, an ample land, the land I've promised. I hear, I see, I remember, I know, and I'm coming. And then that's verses seven and eight. And then God says it again in verses nine and ten. Their cry has come to me. That is, I've heard and I've seen. And now there's just this one twist this time around. Come, I will send you, Moses, to take my people out of the land. And of course, as you read in verse 11, Moses responds just the way a prophet should respond. As Isaiah responded, Lord, here am I, send me. That's not what you read there. Come on. That's not what he responded. I mean, that, he's in the presence of God. He's removed his sandals. He's hidden his face, and basically, he says, "Surely you've got some. You, you've made a mistake here. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I?" But we read chapter two. He's the perfect guy, drawn out of death in the river, raised royally for leadership. Bold and courageous, sort of, when nobody's looking. But now he says, who am I? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Admittedly, he doesn't know yet what the Lord has told us in chapter 2, that the Pharaoh that sought his life had died. He'll tell, the Lord will tell him that in chapter 4. But he's got these excuses. Two of them have to do with himself. Two of them have to do with the people. They spread over chapters three and four, but we can't deal with them all. But the first two are in chapter three. Who am I to confront Pharaoh? And when I come back from all these years in Midian and I say, the God of your fathers sent me to save you, they're going to say, wait a minute. What is his name? What is his name? Plausible excuses, I think. I mean, for all Moses knows, Pharaoh's still on the throne and there's a price tag on his head, and he did not do well last time trying to deliver the people. It it just didn't go the way he thought it would. Uh, Who am I? And then he's coming back from decades of absence, hanging out with Midianites, and he claims that now the God of our fathers has sent me. Really, what is his name? But the Lord has answers for Moses' excuses. (laughs) Uh, unanswerable answers irrefutable answers Moses says who am I the impossibility of the assignment sending a failed savior turned itinerant shepherd to liberate hundreds of thousands of downtrodden slaves it's just it's impossible it's so obvious and it is obvious as long as Moses looks at himself but the Lord's answer did you notice it I will be with you actually it's I am with you It's the same expression that we hear in the Lord's second answer. "Eh, Yeah, I am who I am. I am has sent me. I am with you. The Lord says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not what about me, it's what about who's with me. It's about the Lord. Think of your ancestor Jacob at Bethel, before Peniel. At Bethel, when Jacob was on the run, fleeing from his brother Esau, And God made a covenant and a promise with Jacob, I will be with you, I will not leave you until I've kept my promises. I will be with you. That's the thing Moses needs. And what about his name? What about his name? I am who I am. Sounds like a tautology, of course. And there's a lot of debate in scholarship about all the significance of that. I think older scholars, my impression is, tended to view this as God's identification of himself as self-existent, eternally unchanging. And of course it's connected to the title that we have translated in our versions, Lord, Yahweh, probably, something like that pronounced, uh, not pronounced typically, by the Hebrews at a certain point in their history because of the holiness of that covenant name. Uh, God, the self-existent, constant, eternal, unchanging one. More recent scholarship seems to have more of a consensus that it focuses on God's, not just that, but God's presence with his people. I'm here for you, I'm present with you. I'm not gonna weigh in on that, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. My hunch is it's kind of an intersection of the two I may have seemed absent, but I'm not. I may have seemed forgetful, but I haven't forgotten my covenant. I remember, and so I'm coming. I'm here. I'm with you as the faithful covenant God who will rescue to bring hope to the hopeless. So who is this I am who commissions Moses here? You know him under another name. When Jesus is named... Uh, by the angel before his birth, you are to call him Jesus, for he is to save his people, save his people from their sins. Yahweh is Savior, Yahweh saves. And it fulfills the word of the prophet Isaiah. He will be called Immanuel, God with us. With us, God. With us, God. And as he grew and entered his public ministry, he shocked his Jewish hearers, when he claimed to have lived before Abraham. Before Abraham, he said, John 8, 58, 59, truly I I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. His time had not yet come. They knew what he was claiming. I am the covenant God who appeared to Moses in the flame of fire, who made that promise to Abraham in the flame of fire. I am, I am. And that's not the only time he says that in the Gospels. It's probably the one that got their attention most. But when his disciples, actually just two chapters earlier in John 6, when his disciples were desperate on the sea, thinking they were going to die by drowning. He comes to them walking on the sea. He's the Lord whose paths are in the sea, says the Old Testament. He walks on the sea and he says to them, I am. Don't be afraid. Most of our English versions say, it is I or something like that. But it's simply, Egoemi, Greek, I am. Don't be afraid. I am the savior of my people. And still to us today, Jesus, the great I am, speaks words that we can rely on. I am constant, faithful, remembering, not forgetting, and present with you. Matthew 28, last chapter, 11 men. Jesus meets with them, the risen Lord. Some are still doubting, and he commissions them and the church through them to make disciples of all the nations that cover the whole world. Disciples of all the nations. Keeping the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham and his seed all the nations will be blessed. How can that happen? Who are we? What Jesus says. And, notice, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. By his spirit, now, the great I am is with us and delivering the nations into the hands of the great Messiah by grace through the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears and sees and remembers and comes to deliver. You did it for your ancient people, Israel, in such an amazing way. And you overcame even the objections of that Man whom you had chosen to be your instrument of deliverance, Moses. Fearful, flawed, but the man whom you chose. Thank you, Father, that when the ultimate man of your choosing came, there was no reluctance on his part. In fact, as he entered into the world, he said, I've come to do your will, eagerly to lay down his life for us. Thank you for Jesus, the great I am. And for the promise of his presence with his people, even to the consummation of the age, even to the day of his return bodily and in great glory. Encourage us, strengthen us with the promise of your presence. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.